Section two of I Am a Cat by Natsume Sosaki. Translated by Kanichi Ando. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Eastman. Chapter two. Since the new year, I have gained some fame, and it is a source of satisfaction to think that I, though a cat, can hold my head high in some degree. With the dawn of the New Year's Day, my master received a picture-card of greeting from one of his friends, a painter. The upper and the lower parts of the card were respectively painted with red and deep green, with a crouching animal in pastel in the center. My master scanned the picture sideways and lengthways in his study, and said to himself, Splendid color! Now that he had admired it, I thought he would lay it down. But no! He still went on examining it, sideways, lengthways, twisting his body, stretching out his hand in the manner of an old man reading the book called Sanzeso, or turning himself towards the window and bringing it as near as the tip of his nose. I wished that he would put an end to this examination as soon as possible, for his lap shook to threaten my fall. When at last his agitation subsided in a measure, I heard a low voice from my master saying, I wonder what it represents. Though impressed with the colors of the card, he seemed to have taken pains in vain to make out the identity of the creature in the center. Wondering if it was really so strange an animal, I gracefully half-opened my eyes and calmly looked at the picture. It was my likeness. Yes, there was no doubt of it. It was not likely that the picture was painted after the fashion of Andrea del Sarto, as my master once did. But, at any rate, I could tell, by the perfect outlines and coloring, that it was by the hand of one who makes painting one's profession. Anyone could tell that it was a cat, and anyone of even a little sense of perception could clearly distinguish in it myself of all cats. It was so unequivocally represented. Still, he troubled himself so greatly with the small affair that I felt some pity for human helplessness. I wished to tell him, if possible, that it was my picture, and even if he could not take that in, to make him understand at least that it was a picture of a cat. But man, after all, is not blessed with such heavenly gifts as to understand the cat's speech. So I was obliged to leave the matter as it was. I wish to call the attention of my readers to the fact that man has fallen into a habit of pooh-poohing us. But it will not do for him to always look down upon us in his proud way. It is not rare among such a class of men as teachers, who, being blind to their own ignorance, are puffed up with self-importance, to think the ox and the horse are made from the scum of man, and the cat, in turn, is made from the refuse of the ox and the horse. Fie upon it! Even the cat is not brought into existence so easily. We may look as much alike as if cast in the same mould, each with no individuality of his own. But a close observer of our race can see that we are of all sorts and kinds. In fact, a human saying, ten men have as many personalities, 
is equally applicable to the members of our family. For instance, the look of our eye and nose, as well as the type of fur and paws, are all different. Nor is there any sameness with regard to the style of beards, the form of ears, and the manner in which we hold our tails. Again, there are handsome cats, ugly cats, stylish cats and rude cats, cats with this taste and cats with that taste. I am not stretching a bit when I say that the diversity of the natures and features of cats is almost endless. Notwithstanding this marked display of difference, man is unable to make even a slight distinction between the features of one cat and those of another, not to say anything of our nature, because his eyes are lifted to the sky, saying, we must always aim at something lofty, etc. Birds of a feather flock together. As the old proverb has it, one is the best judge of one's company. So I say that the cat knows better than anyone else about things relating to the cat. Whatever development man may make, he cannot be expected to outdo us so far as this question is concerned. The more so when he is not in reality so knowing a creature. Not a bit of it, although he believes himself to be so. This is particularly the case with my master, who, wanting in sympathy, does not know even the simple truth that mutual understanding is the first requisite of love. As an obstinate oyster sticks to a rock, so he always keeps close to his study, and never pays any attention to the goings-on in the outside world. And it is ludicrous to see him assume the airs of a man of insight. That he is not one is proved by the fact that even in the actual presence of my likeness there was no indication at all of his having recognized me in it. All he said to himself was this nonsense. As it is the second year of the Japan-Russia War, this picture perhaps represents the bear. I was thus thinking, while lying on my master's lap, when the maid brought to him a second picture card. It was a printed one, showing a row of some foreign cats engaged in studying, some holding pens and some opening books. Apart from the rest, there was, at a corner of the table, a cat who was dancing a dance of an Occidental cat. Over this cat was written in jet-black Japanese characters, I am a cat, while on the right side was added a haiku, which read, The spring is one long happy day of reading and dancing to cats, they say. This card was sent in by one of my master's old pupils, and anyone could see at a glance what it meant but the thick-skulled master evidently failed to take in this obvious significance. He shook his head in wonder and murmured to himself, Hm, maybe this year is that of the cat. I only wonder whether the cat is one of the twelve calendar signs of the zodiac. He was apparently still unaware that I had become famous. Just then the maid brought in a third card. Not a pictured one this time. It was a common postcard, on which was written, I wish you a happy new year, and postscripted, Kindly oblige me by remembering me to your cat. The expressions were so unequivocal 
that even the blunt-witted master seemed to find it easy to grasp the idea. Hm, he said at last with a look of recognition, and looked into my face. I thought there was an unusual expression of respect in his eyes, considering it was all through me that an unknown teacher had gained some fame all of a sudden, I think it was only fair to expect such a glance from him. Just then a bell attached to the gate-door was rung, probably by a visitor. Now visitors are usually shown in by the maid, and I make it a rule not to go to the door to meet anyone, excepting when Umeko, a fishmonger, comes. As it was, I sat still on my master's knee, assuming an unconcerned air. But he cast an uneasy glance towards the door, as he would have done had a Shylock intruded. He was evidently loath to receive a guest who came to offer him greetings of the new year, and to keep his company over sake. He will take the prize for eccentricity. If he really disliked visitors, he ought to have gone out early. But he had not the courage to do that. By this his oyster-like character is fully manifested. Soon the maid appeared, announcing the call of Mr. Kangetsu. A man named Kangetsu is said to be also an old pupil of my master's. But after graduation he got a good position, and they say he is now doing better than his old master. He often comes to see him, though I do not know for what. Whenever he calls, he talks as if there is a girl who loves him, or there is not, and as if he enjoys life, or he does not. And when he goes over this strange discourse, which may be taken either as bright or gloomy, he takes his leave. I can hardly understand why he chooses such a seedy man as my master to talk on such matters. And it is amusing to hear this oyster-like master chime in now and then with his opinion. I beg your pardon for not calling on you sooner. To tell the truth, I have been on the move since the end of last year. But my legs would not carry me in this direction, do what I would," said Mr. Kangetsu ambiguously, playing with the strings of his haori. "'In what direction do you bend your steps?' asked my master with a serious look, pulling the end of the sleeves of his black Monsky haori. This haori is of cotton, and is so short in the sleeves that his worn-out silk kimono sticks out two inches. "'To a rather unbeaten track, ha ha ha!' laughed Mr. Kangetsu. I noticed that one of his front teeth had been broken. "'What have you done with one of your teeth?' asked my master, by way of changing the topic. "'The fact is, I ate some mushrooms at a certain place.' "'Ate what?' "'Mushrooms. I tried to bite off the head of a mushroom with my front teeth, when one of them broke off with a crack.' To break off a tooth by eating a mushroom is more proper for a gaffer. It may make a haiku, but would never do for a love episode," said my master, patting my head. Ah, is that the cat you talked of the other day? It's very fat. I say it will not give way even before Kurumaya's black. It's a splendid cat. Mr. Kangetsu spoke of me in glowing terms. It's grown very big of late, you know said my master, with a look of pride, and wrapped my head successively. I was quite satisfied with the praise, 
but I confess his taps gave me some pain. The night before last, said Mr. Kangetsu, resuming the original topic, we held another little concert. Where? You need not be anxious to know the place. We had a glorious time with a concert of three violins and a piano. Now even a poor performance on violins is sweet enough to please the ear, if played together by three or four persons. Well, two of the players were ladies, and I joined them, and I flatter myself that I played unusually well. Hum, and who were the ladies? questioned my master in an envious tone. Although his personal appearance is as impassive as the marble in the quarry, my master is by no means classed among those who pay little attention to the softer sex. He once read a foreign novel, in which a character is satirically described as invariably sweet upon women in general, and falls in love with seven per cent of the women he sees. When he came to that chapter he was much moved by the description, and declared it true. This proves what sort of a man he is. Then why does such a fickle man keep so close to his shell? It is a hard nut for me to crack. Some say it is owing to his lost love, some to his weak stomach, while others ascribe it to his meager means and timidity. At any rate, it is not worth while to make any inquiry into the cause, since he is the man least likely to be recorded in the history of the Meiji era. Let me simply say that at least the fact of his envious inquiry after Mr. Kangetsu's lady friends admits of no doubt. Mr. Kangetsu picked humorously with his chopsticks at a piece of kamaboko on a side-dish, and bit it in two with his front teeth. I feared he would lose another tooth, but there was no danger of it this time. "'Why, both the ladies,' he replied coldly, "'are the daughters of certain gentlemen. You have no personal acquaintance with them.' "'Oh,' drawled my master, but without finishing the next word, indeed, he plunged into thought. "'I should like to accompany you for a stroll, if you are not otherwise engaged,' invited Mr. Kangetsu, who seemed to think that he had sufficiently vexed his host. "'The weather is very fine, and the news of the fall of Port Arthur has thrown the whole capital into stir and life.' But my master was still absorbed in meditation, with looks as much as to say that an explanation of the ladies was of more importance to him than the fall of the stronghold. After a time, however, he seemed to give up the inquiry for a walk. "'Let us go out, then,' he said, and stood up determinedly. He was dressed in the same old clothes, the crested black kauri of common cloth, and a worn-out winter garment given, as is said, by his brother as a keepsake, which had been in use for twenty years. It was of a strong stuff called yukitsumugi, but however durable the stuff might be, it could not last forever. As it was, the costume was frayed so badly here and there, that when held up to the light one could see the stitches of patches inside. He wears the same clothes year in and year out. His everyday clothes are worn for all special occasions. As may be imagined, he does not trouble himself with changing his clothes when he goes out. 
he simply leaves home with his hands in his bosom. I do not know whether or not he has any holiday garments, but even if he has any, he saves himself the trouble of changing his ordinary clothes for them. I am prone to think, however, that this habit, at least, has nothing to do with his supposed lost love. After my master and Mr. Kangetsu had gone out, I took the liberty to help myself to the remnant of Kamaboko bidden off by the guest. You know I am no common cat of late. I believe I am not presumptuous when I say that I am as worthy of notice as the cat whose story used to be a favorite one of Momokawa John, a famous raconteur, or the cat who stole Gray's goldfish. It is taken for granted that I take no account of such a fellow as Kurumaya's black. So I think I am not to be blamed for such a trifle as freely eating a slice or two of kamaboko. Besides, the habit of eating on the sly between meals is not necessarily peculiar to our race alone. The maid of our house, for instance, often makes herself quite at home when the mistress is out, and helps herself freely to sweets. Nor is the maid the only exception. Even the children, who are declared by the mistress as being taught manners, are not free from this inclination. A few days ago both the kids got up awfully early, and while their parents were still in bed they sat at table facing each other. They are used to getting a portion of the bread which forms my master's breakfast, and to eat it with sugar. On this morning they happened to find a sugar jar on the table, with a spoon invitingly laid beside it. Finding no one to help them to their usual share of sugar, the elder girl took a spoonful out of the jar and put it on her plate. Then the younger one got a similar quantity on her plate by the same means. For a time they stared at each other. Then the elder took hold of the spoon and added another spoonful to her plate. The younger soon followed this example, making her share equal. Then the elder got another spoonful. The younger soon did the same. Then the one laid her hand on the jar while the other took hold of the spoon. In this way, the plate of each went on receiving spoonful after spoonful, until it soon made an overflowing heap of sugar. The jar was thus almost emptied, when my master came out of the bedchamber, rubbing his sleepy eyes, and the jar was soon filled with its original contents. One can easily surmise from this that although in point of the idea of fairness originating from egoism man may be surpassed, he is not fit to hold a candle to us as regards wit. I thought it would be well for the children to at once enjoy a free taste of sugar before they made such heaps. But as they could not, as I said before, understand my speech, I could not but sit silently on a rice-tub and observe their stupid proceedings. I do not know where my master really went with Mr. Kangetsu, but he returned home very late that night. It was about nine o'clock next morning that the family sat at breakfast. I took my usual seat on the rice-tub and surveyed them. My master was silently gulping Zoni. He emptied bowl after bowl. True, the mochi was in small pieces, but then he devoured, I remember, six or seven pieces. 
Leaving the last piece in his bowl, he finally laid down his busy chopsticks and said, Now I've had enough. If any other member of the family had behaved in a like manner, he would have severely reprimanded that one for a breach of table manners. But as the head of the household, he likes to give himself airs of a little despot. Under the circumstance, he sat quite cool before the scorched and broken mochi lying in the mussy juice. His wife brought out a bottle of takadiastes from the cupboard and placed it on the table. I won't take it said my master, as it is not efficacious. But then they say it is marvellously good for starch. You should take it, urged his wife. Starch or no starch, it does me no good, insisted her husband. You are really very changeable, murmured the other. No, I am not. It is because the medicine is poor that I do not take it. But you did take it every day until recently, saying it worked a miracle. It did me some good then. It does me no good now, retorted my master antithetically. If one takes a medicine by fits and starts, as you do, any efficacious medicine is likely to produce no effect. Unless you are a little more patient, you will never get your indigestion cured. For unlike other complaints, it is of an obstinate nature. Don't you think so? said his wife, turning to the maid, who was waiting on them with tray in hand. Yes, ma'am, you are quite right, joined the maid, taking her side without hesitation. You can't tell whether it's any good or not if you don't go on trying it. Let me alone, I say I won't take it, for so have I decided. What good does woman's counsel do? Put a bridle on your tongues. Yes, I give woman's counsel, said the mistress, pushing the bottle of Takadiastes to him, in a manner that meant he was to do her bidding at any cost. But my master rose up in silence and entered his study, while mistress and maid looked at each other and exchanged a sarcastic smile. It being very dangerous to follow him and get on his knee at such a time, I judiciously went round the garden, and got upon the veranda of his study. I peeped through an opening between the sliding screens, and found my master reading a work by Epictetus, if my memory is right. If he could understand that in the state of mind he was in, he would certainly be a wonderful student. But such was not the case. Five minutes had scarcely passed before he threw the book upon the table with a bang, which was just what I expected. I looked on still intently, and saw him bring out his diary, and make the following entry. Took a walk with Kangetsu, Tunezu, Uyeno, Ikenohata, and a part of Kanda. Met in front of a machi eye at Ikenohata, a geisha, dressed up in a spring garment with a printed skirt, playing battledore and shuttlecock. Her dress was beautiful, but her face was very plain, looking somewhat like that of our cat. Now it seems entirely out of the way to make a special allusion to me in the matter of ugly looks. Suppose I go to Kitadoko, a barber's, to have the hair of my face shaved. The result will be, I am sure, that I shall be of a piece with man, so far as my looks are concerned. The vanity of man is simply astonishing. 
when we turned round to the corner of Hotan the druggist, we came across another geisha. She was a slender, well-favoured girl, with delicate shoulders, and the dress of light purple in which she was neatly clad gave her a graceful appearance. As we passed her, she smiled, showing her ivory teeth, and said, Pardon, Genchan, I was very busy last night, you know. It was a surprise that her voice was as hoarse as a frog. This seemed, as it were, to dismantle her beauty to a degree. Indeed, my curiosity to turn around to see what sort of a man a Genshan was completely died away. We then got out to Onari Michi, I with my hands in my bosom. Kangetsu was singularly restless. Nothing is harder to define than the human mind. In what frame of mind was my master at that time? Was he out of temper? Was he in good humor? Or was he smoothing the ruffled brow of care by means of a work of an ancient philosopher? No one could tell. Was he scoffing at the world? Or was he desirous to go into society? Was he stirring up his temper for a trifle? Or was he standing aloof of worldly concerns? No one could guess at all. When we come to think of human caprice, we, cats, cannot but be proud of our simplicity. We eat when we want to eat. We sleep when we want to sleep. When we are angry, we pour out the vials of our wrath to the last drop. When we are sad, we cry ourselves blind. Besides, we are never in need of such a useless thing as a diary, for we find it unnecessary to make a daily record. It may be useful for a hypocrite like my master, who is given to taking off the veil in seclusion, screened from public observation. As for our family, every action is a faithful register. I think, therefore, we are not required to preserve our true self by such troublesome means. If we have time to spare for journalizing, we prefer to indulge in a nap on a veranda. Supped at a restaurant in Kanda, took two or three cups of Masamune, the taste of which I had long forgotten. As a result, I feel remarkably well. A little sake at supper seems an excellent thing for indigestion. Takadayastes does no good. Truly, it is worthless, whatever one may say of it. If medicine it is, it is only an inefficacious one. He bitterly attacked poor Takadayastes, and appeared as if he was quarreling with himself. He thus gave vent to the passion roused by the petty family dispute that morning. The real importance of man's diary may be for such cases as this. Some days ago, A told me that abstinence from morning meal would cure indigestion. Did so for two or three days. No effect, only a rumbling of abdomen. B advised to refrain from eating pickled vegetables. He was of the opinion that pickles cause a weak stomach, and therefore the best remedy is not to eat them, for by doing so the very root of the complaint is cut off. Had not a morsel of pickles for a week, derived no particular good from it, so began to eat them again. Then I heard from C that massage works a wonder, but not the ordinary massage. It was one of the old school, known as Miyagawa style. If treated by this massage once or twice, 
the average indigestion would be thoroughly cured. Yasui Soken, a well-known scholar of Chinese classics, he said, was much in favor of this massage, and a hero like Sakamoto Ryuba received his treatment now and again. So I immediately went to Kaminagishi to try it. But the massagist handled me so roughly, saying that a complete recovery was not to be ensured unless the bones were needed, or unless the viscera were once upset, that I felt more dead than alive afterwards, being in a state of stupor. Of course, I did not repeat this trying experience. Then D said I must not eat any solid food. So I made a trial, taking nothing but milk for a day. This time the bowels rumbled as if a flood had taken place in them, and I passed a sleepless night. Then E came with his counsel to try to breathe so as to move the diaphragm in a way that would exercise the internal organs. Then it naturally follows, he said, that the stomach will regain its normal function. This experiment also proved a failure. To begin with, it gave a strange sensation of uneasiness. I would suddenly begin to breathe as I was told, but would forget again after five or six minutes and if I tried not to forget, I could neither read nor write. Meite, the aesthetician, found me in one of these trials, and sarcastically remarked, Away with your silly effort! You look like a man in throes! And so I have given up this practice also. Mr. F. told me to eat soba. So I proceeded at once to take alternately kake and mori, which resulted in another trouble. Thus I have tried every possible means in my power to cure my chronic disease, but all in vain. I must not forget to state, however, that the three cups of Masamune which I took last night as I supped with Kangetsu had a decided effect, and I mean to drink the same quantity every evening hereafter. I am sure that this, like the rest, will not last long. My master's mind is constantly changing like the pupils of my eyes. He is, as this entry shows, very anxious about his complaint, and yet he pretends to be indifferent to it. Is it not funny? The other day a friend of his, a man of learning, came and demonstrated, from a certain standpoint of view, that all maladies are nothing more or less than the results of the sins of our forefathers as well as those of our own. It was an excellent opinion, evidently established on a laborious investigation, for his theory was conclusive, without a shade of ambiguity. Now my master, I am sorry to say, has no brains or culture to take a stand in any respect against this argument. But since he himself was suffering from indigestion, he apparently thought he was bound to plead his own case somehow or other, in order to hold his head up. I admire your opinion, but at the same time I must remind you that Carlyle was bilious too. My master offered this silly protest, as if he deemed it a mark of honor to share the same disease with the great author. Though Carlyle suffered from indigestion, a sufferer of indigestion does not necessarily make a Carlyle, confuted the man, and silenced my master. With all his vanity, my master really wishes to be free from indigestion, 
for he said he would take a little sake with supper from that very evening. Is it not a farce? I think that the quantity of zoni he ate that morning may have been the result of the masamune taken on the preceding night with Mr. Kangetsu. Speaking of zoni, I also felt inclined to have a little. Though I am a cat, I eat almost anything. Unlike Kurumaya's black, I have not the ambition to make an expedition as far as the fishmongers in the side street. Nor am I under a lucky star to live on the fat of the land, as is Miss Mike, who belongs to a lady teacher of a two-stringed harp, who lives on the new road. Consequently, I am not particular about my food. I eat the crumbs of bread left by the children, and I taste sweetmeats. Pickled vegetables are not at all palatable, but I once ate a piece or two, just to try them. I do not know how it is, but when I once taste, I find almost all victuals eatable. It is more becoming a sybarite than a cat living in a teacher's house to insist upon making a choice of food. According to what my master says, there was in France a novelist called Balzac. He is said to have been a fastidious man, not in living, but in diction and phraseology, as does credit to one in his profession. One day he was endeavouring to find a proper name for a character in a novel he was writing, but none seemed to suit his fancy. Just then a friend of his dropped in, and they soon went out for a walk. Now the friend accompanied Balzac, little knowing with what his mind was occupied then. On the other hand, Balzac walked along the streets, riveting his eyes upon the signboards of shops, intent upon finding the name he had long sought for his character. Still, no name was found to come up to his idea. He walked from one street to another, with his friend following him, in a state of maze. Thus they wandered through Paris, from morn till nightfall. On their way, however, Balzac happened to catch sight of a tailor's signboard, on which was painted the name of Marcus. "'Hurrah! That's it! Isn't Marcus a glorious name?' he exclaimed, clapping his hand. "'Add the initial Z to it, and it makes a perfect name. Yes, it must be Z. Z Marcus! How fine it sounds! An invented name, however befitting it may seem, has something unnatural in it. I've got an ideal name at last.' He was, as is said, in a transport of delight, entirely forgetful of his poor companion. It is indeed not an easy job to have to devote a whole day to the exploring of Paris solely for the purpose of naming a character of a novel. Happy are those who can afford to carry their fastidious taste so far. But such an ambition never occurs to me, who am destined to have an oyster-like master. It is my circumstances that make me satisfy my appetite with almost any sort of food. As it is, it was not a sense of fastidiousness that made me feel like eating zoni. It was simply from the idea of getting something to eat whenever possible that I recollected I might find the wooden cup of zoni left by my master. So I went round to the kitchen. End of section 2